Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many people are experiencing this as a threshold moment, as more and more people are waking up to an expanded sense of what it means to be human, of how intimately and marvelously we are connected to each other, to the universe. This is not an abstraction. Rather, it's a visceral awareness, one that shapes our relationship to our own bodies and how we relate to the world around us. At the same time that we can feel the high energy of this opening, it seems that the threats to our existence get even greater that the foundation our society is built upon is trembling. How can you address that threat honestly and still make yourself available to the beauty of this new emerging world? It's a remarkable moment. The opportunities are huge. The dangers are real. You're just in time for the evolution. Welcome to The Evolver, where each week I talk with inspiring pioneers of the new consciousness culture. If this show speaks to you, remember to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Acast, or on the podcatcher of your choice. Share this episode on social media and with friends at the Psychedelic Integration Circle. And leave a rating on iTunes. That really helps us reach more people. Our email address is theevolver at evolver.net for feedback. And you can follow us on Instagram at The Evolver Podcast and on Facebook at Evolver Social Movement. Now, let's get started. Welcome to The Evolver, sponsored by The Alchemist Kitchen, hosted by Ken Jordan. For most of us, yoga starts out as an alternative to Pilates or stationary cycling. It's a way to get some exercise at a point in our lives when the food that we eat, the beer we guzzle, the excessive driving we do, and our sedentary day jobs conspire to turn our bodies into lumpy potatoes. Then one day, we happen into a class that slots in a short sitting meditation at the top or tail, and we recognize yoga has some kind of connection to meditation. You might even enjoy the surprising calm that comes after 75 minutes of intense sweating. It certainly wasn't what we learned to expect after grinding it out in the gym or pushing through to the last shot of a basketball game. But for most of us, the connection between yoga and meditation stops there, at least for a while. Little do we realize that the whole point of asana practice is to prepare us to go places in our meditation that we never realized were possible. Many of us will hover at that plateau for months or years until suddenly something happens and you're somewhere else. You're sitting cross-legged on the ground or you're flat on your back in shavasana. The fabric of reality has softened. Your breathing is barely a whisper and you're being held aloft by an inexplicable field of light. Whoa, how did I get here? What's happening? You mean no one ever told you that the whole reason yoga practice was developed in the first place was to lure you into an expanded state of consciousness? Well, don't feel bad. You're not the only one. For most of us, this realization shows up as a wiggy surprise. Then, if you choose to jump down that rabbit hole and pursue the clues as they're presented to you, Existence gets a whole lot more interesting. 
The world that opens up through meditation is just as wild as the one that bursts through when you take psilocybin mushrooms. In fact, it's the same one. You're just entering the same room through a different door. But that's rarely discussed in polite company. In the official public conversation, yoga is a fitness practice. Meditation reduces stress so you can be a more efficient worker bee. But in truth, these practices, alongside psychedelics, are tools for liberation. Few people can talk about yoga from this perspective, as well as my guest today, Kevin Courtney. Kevin is considered one of the most influential yoga teachers in America. His work has been featured in the New York Times, Vogue, Vice, Well and Good, among many other places. He's a featured teacher on Gaia Online and has been the curator for yoga practice at the Bonnaroo and Envision Music Festivals. Kevin's music group, Nada Sahara, produced one of the most listened to albums in yoga studios across the country. Spoiler alert, this conversation goes deep. If you're interested in the connection between yoga and consciousness expansion, you're in for a treat. You don't usually get to hear people who have this depth of understanding about the mystical tenets of yoga speak so openly about the true nature of these practices. It's a conversation that's happening more and more over cups of tea, but not often enough on the microphone. Today, we're doing our own small bit to remedy that situation. Everyone seems to be talking about CBD these days, that is, cannabidiol, the non-psychoactive component of cannabis. The buzz is that CBD doesn't make you high, like THC does, but for conditions such as stress and anxiety, health professionals are increasingly recommending it as an alternative to pharmaceuticals, and scientific research is showing that CBD is highly anti-inflammatory, so it can help with pain relief. What does the scientific research say about CBD? Research centers in the United States and elsewhere are studying the effects of CBD on a variety of ailments. Scientists refer to CBD as a promiscuous compound because it offers therapeutic benefits in many different ways while tapping into how we function physiologically and biologically on a deep level. Extensive preclinical research and some clinical studies have shown that CBD has strong antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, antidepressant, antipsychotic, and neuroprotective qualities. What's the best way to take CBD? CBD-rich cannabis oil products can be taken sublingually, orally, as edibles, lozenges, beverages, tinctures, and gel caps, or applied topically. Concentrated cannabis oil extracts can also be heated and inhaled with a vape pen. Inhalation is good for treating acute symptoms that require immediate attention. The effects can be felt within a minute or two and typically last for a couple of hours. The effects of orally administered CBD-rich cannabis oil can last for four hours or more, but the onset of effects is much slower, like 30 to 90 minutes, than inhalation. Evolver is the proud papa of the Alchemist Kitchen, a botanical dispensary located in the Bowery District of New York, where you can find the finest quality CBD products available without THC. We also make our own premium CBD under the Plant Alchemy label. Our producer Jose's mom uses it for stress, anxiety, and high blood pressure. Our plants are grown in both field and greenhouse environments, cultivated using living soil organic principles, leveraging strictly organic inputs, and in full compliance with the controls defined by the Colorado Department of Agriculture. Our plants are some of the highest CBD cannabis varieties currently known. 
You can find out more about CBD by visiting the Alchemist Kitchen website at thealchemistskitchen.com. There's an S in there. And searching for CBD. There are articles on the blog, an FAQ, and a selection of vetted products. Or stop by our spot at 21 East 1st Street in Manhattan, between Bowery and 2nd Avenue, and talk to one of our staff herbalists. At the shop, tell them you listen to the Evolver podcast and receive a 10% discount on any product on the shelves. So when you teach folks, what do you feel you're really communicating? Is it just movement or is it something else? I mean, it's presence. That's the clear answer for sure. Presence. And how do you communicate that to them? Uh, well, I mean, I, I, that answer is definitely a result of a lot of trial and error and a lot of time uh, operating from a different aspect of myself you know, from ego or from mind or whatever it is. And so I say that now after 20 years, it's presence. But, you know, any, and it depends on the scenario too. If it's a yoga class versus me sitting one-on-one, that's going to be a different environment. But as you're asking me, I'm imagining a yoga class, right? I mean, it's transparent, right? We're all transparent. So you can go into any class and you kind of get a sense of where that teacher is speaking from. And... I think for me as a teacher trainer and also as somebody who's been doing it for 20 years, it's like the most potent place that I could teach from would be what's present. Did yoga teaching start for you as a movement practice and then it turned into something else? Or was did you always have that sense that it was about this other thing? No, it was definitely an embodiment practice first. And it was... Um, yeah, it was learning how to bring my awareness and bring my attention into the body. And and through that process, you have to encounter every aspect of yourself. And so I think that quickly it went from a physical practice to, wait, there's something more, there's something deeper going on here. And so what is that something deeper? And right away, it was uncomfortable. It was challenging. It was humbling. It was all, all of these things that were etching on something that was way beyond what body is, you know? So let's put that up front and center for a second, because I was talking to somebody about it this morning, actually. It's not necessarily easy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And... Yoga as a practice. Yoga as a practice, presence as a practice. Sure. Right? No. All of this spiritual attainment stuff. Yeah. There are a lot of... There's a lot out there that kind of would like to make you think... Yeah, you know, it's just about orienting your intention. It's about opening your heart. Mm -hmm. It's about being a bigger awareness. Mm -hmm. And then you're going to flow. You know, that was not my experience. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Every time I started to open towards a bigger flow, I got a kick in the head, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And then there's that period of like, okay, you're going to work through that. Mm -hmm. And you're going to work through that. And all the really good stuff basically came down to my being able to hold it for myself in a way where I kind of like, I mean, the way I actually literally think about it for myself and just being me is it's like making your way through the eye of a needle, Mm. right? Mm. Boy, there's a massive wall in front of you and there's a hole in the wall that's about the size of the eye of a needle. Mm -hmm. Can you get through that? You Mm. get through that and it's a motherfucker. Yeah. Then- There's another wall. There's another wall. (laughs) There's another wall. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. But the upside is also worth it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, so if you think about what you're contending with in that moment is most often you're contending with ego and mind. Right. And so the 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 practice, any any kind of solid yoga practice, I think, is designed to exacerbate the function of ego and mind enough so that you can see it. And then you have this opportunity to encounter it. And then you have to learn how to reconcile that. So and this is me talking as a kind of lay person, mm. but is it yeah. that the way that the the movements are structured in yoga, the challenges of the physicality of it, mm. do they are they meant to prompt? I think so. I think they're they're built as a container for an experience of inquiry, right? So, I think that it, it depends on the school of thought for sure in terms of what yoga class you're in. There's going to be some that don't have this conversation whatsoever and it's just about moving through a flow of postures to to feel good or to you know come into relaxation or whatever it is and maybe there's music playing maybe there's you know maybe it's a hip-hop yoga class or something like that i don't know there's all there's all different iterations of it but ultimately you could look at a posture as designed technologically to do a couple different things one would be to remove stagnation and blocked energy in the body. So a twist, for example, is, yeah, a twist can open up the spine but and open up the hips in its way, but ultimately, like, what is a twist going for? I would say it's going for a deep internal massage of the organs, and it's drawing, it's drawing you into a place of proximity with a certain leverage to move energy from the deepest aspects of your body. So if you look at the organ structures and where they sit in the body and how postures are positioned, forward bend, back bend, side bend, side like twist, whatever it is, those actions have a functionality to them. And on one of the deeper layers of yoga, you could say its functionality is to get into the inner structure and actually soften you from the inside out. And not just physically, but also say emotionally. Well, certainly. And so that opens up the gateway to the nervous system and how tension, unconscious or subconscious or just stress, let's just say simply like stress, stress is held in the body. Where is it held? Well, we can map that out and we can say, oh, okay, well, there are there are subtle lines of energy or meridians or nadis, these rivers of energy that move through the body. Or if we're in the Chinese system, right, uh, an acupuncturist would look at the meridians of the body and say, oh, okay, there's a meridian line that goes from the foot all the way to the crown of the head that relates to your bladder. So there's actually an internal map, right, of the, both the organs and then essentially energetic channels that run from those organs. And how we are in any given moment, let's say just stressed or relaxed, if we just take those two states, a stressed state is going to end up, yes, creating maybe physical tension, but certainly uh, down to an energetic level of energy gets stuck and stagnant that's going to start to manifest itself physically and you might end up with the tissue around an organ getting very stale and and tight. And then the feedback loop is if there's tension in that space, 
Well, your thoughts are governed by essentially the state of your physical body. So there's a, there's a direct feedback loop to the state of your body and the state of your mind, right? And so... And it can also lead to illness. As I say, the, that stagnation. The stagnation. Or, for sure. Yeah. For sure. I mean, the entire, I think the entire system of Chinese medicine is built on the notion of anything out of balance is, the, is, is essentially a precursor to what without being addressed would become some sort of dis, disease or dis, disease, as they would put it. Yeah. And so when I hear the phrase out of balance, I always, mm. you know, New York Jew that I am, think, mm. what the fuck does that mean, mm. really? I don't know exactly. Yeah. You know, but when you talk about um, how a, the stress in the body builds up mm-hmm. over time and you're not releasing it through some kind of movement practice mm-hmm. or emotional energetic practice, that can, I guess, that's what they mean by out of balance. Is that fair? That's for sure. For sure. And it is a big leap for someone who hasn't considered this what the state of the body would do to the state of mind to, to, you know, for most, most of us untrained or unpracticed, or if we haven't taken a look or if we haven't given it any sort of thought, we primarily see ourselves as a physical being who, you know, most of us, our attention, our mind is out. It's external, it's externalized. So a lot of people don't even think necessarily about the fact of what governs their thoughts. Right, that's not a natural like. It's not your go-to move. So the notion that you have this instrument that you can actually leverage and you can use in a certain way to create a certain state, whether that's relaxation or whether that's meditation or whether that's mm, a long process of coming to know the deeper emotional patterns that we have, or the or um, going so far as to basically, let's say, let's just put it really simply and say like somebody's stressed and they're uncomfortable and they're angry and they're just like suffering, right? Maybe that person gets to a point of suffering enough that they actually start to ask a question. Why? And what's, what's the reason for my suffering? And the Hatha yoga practice anyway would say, we're going to use postures and we're going to use breath and we're going to use the focus of the mind to leverage all of that to create a state of ease or a state of balance or a state of harmony. So that's to say that whether it's an emotional imbalance or whether it's a mental imbalance or whether it's a physical imbalance, that all three of those could be addressed through the embodiment of these specific practices and different forms of yoga go at that in their own unique way. So that's why when you ask me about teaching a class, it's like, oh, well, which, which one, which kind of class? You know, because they all have their own approach. Um, as somebody goes deeper into the practice, mm. do you find that these connections become more obvious? Or do they really need to be <laughs> drawn out and explained to the average Westerner yeah. who doesn't intuitively see this stuff coming? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I think that's that's the function of my work primarily in terms of outside of the yoga class when I'm working with someone one-on-one, we are spending the majority of our time helping them to identify and articulate and integrate what their experience is when they're having whatever the experience is, right? So, so yeah, I mean, in terms of 
the awareness and the ability to see and understand and articulate the multi-dimensional layers of being, that journey is going to be different for everyone. And you've got some people that are more intellectual. You've got some people that are more emotional. You've got some people that are more physically driven. And so, you know, depending on the faction of, depending on the person's sort of predisposition, you know, what's their strength? Like somebody who's hyper-intellectual, I might give a very specific physical practice that's filled with cues, very detailed, very specific cues that essentially captivate their intellect and captivate their attention and bring them into their body by bringing, by giving them multiple data points to consider simultaneously. And someone who's got that sort of expansive realm of intelligence naturally would be like, ah, oh, yes. Whereas maybe somebody who's just a feeler <clears throat> and they hear even all the words I'm saying now and they're just like words, 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 words. They want to feel something. I'm going to give that person a completely different practice. And so I think... In terms of the actual motion, the sequence of movements. Sequence of movements, the instruction, the where the focus is. And I mean, for me now, I think... 20 years in, my interest is most captivated by, regardless of the person and regardless of their strengths or their weaknesses, my whole thing now is like, how simple can we make it? How easy can we make it? And how little can we do to achieve a deep state of connection, of ease, of meditation, and of coherence. You mean I don't have to put my foot behind my head in order to reach samadhi? Right. Huh. Right. <laughs> I didn't realize that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, this is the thing. is like you've got, you've, you've, in my opinion, absolutely, yes, you don't need to. I think that for some people, that physical gateway is going to be the pathway that's going to create the path of least resistance. So it's right for them. I mean, now, I say this now, after going through Iyengar yoga, after going through Kundalini yoga, after going through Qigong, after going through all of these different lineages and essentially learning all that I could learn, after all of that, I've come to this system of, of, the, of Hatha Tantra or the, of the tantric way of Hatha yoga, which basically says we're going to leverage energy management. So it's the, essentially you could say Tantra is the science of energy management. So we're going to use the body and we're going to use the mind to place energy in the body in a specific place to create a certain state. So that can access an 80-year-old, that can access, uh, you know, like anyone who's on any realm of the spectrum of how they can move or their capacity to focus or you know, whatever it is that, that this this simple direct path towards using the body in a very acute way with very simple instructions, in my experience, can lead to profound benefits. I know so, this is, yeah. you know, this is audio, so it's a little challenging, but yeah. could you give me an example of what that kind of tantric hatha motion or movement might be for someone who's maybe not so physically adept? So if we were to say, Let's say we everybody pretty much has a has downward facing dog in their mind, right? This this shape where you're on your hands and you're on your feet and your hips are lifted up towards the sky. So I did it this morning. All right. So yeah. So yeah. So you're in an you're essentially in an inverted V, right? And so if you were to inhale and bring your knees to the ground, 
And then you were to exhale and bring your hips back over your heels. And then inhale back up to all fours and exhale back to down dog. That could be one whole cycle of movement. So that's simple, right? Mm -hmm. Theoretically. And what makes that so activated? So in the case of, of the Tantra way that you would approach that would be to inhale with your awareness in deep into the navel. So you'd breathe into the navel. On the exhalation, you'd pull the navel back to the spine and you'd aim to lift the pelvic floor up a little bit. Then you'd inhale and you'd let that go. And then you'd exhale and you'd bring the attention back to that acute point at the navel and you'd draw it back and you'd lift the pelvic floor up. So essentially, you're creating compression in the lower abdomen and in the pelvic floor. And so you're activating that somatic space, which holds a certain sway over the psyche, too, or and over what asp- And what aspect of the psyche does that connect to? I mean, is that a general thing for everybody, or is it more specific person to person? Uh, no, I mean, there's a whole map that would be, I think there's a whole nother show, um, you know, in terms of what aspects live, like what, what characteristics or what aspects live in that space. But I mean, for that root level, you know, is such a sensitive place for so many. We're talking about the pelvic floor. We're talking about the, the genitals. We're talking about that space where people have so much history right? And potential trauma or potential deficiency or potential overactivation. So bringing attention to that can trigger all kinds of stuff. For sure. For sure. For sure. I mean, the intention of the practice would be to either ignite the area to remove the block or to awaken the space or to heal that, that area of either the body or the psyche. Let's say in the case of trauma, I mean, we're all traumatized in some way if we wake up and walk out the door, right? If we're, our eyes are open, it's like, if we're, if we're awake in this world today. It is a traumatic experience. It's There's a traumatic experience. No question. No, but I mean, this is also, I mean, real. You, real, you live a real life. Yeah. And stuff happens. Yeah. And family happens. Yeah. And, you know, all that. Yeah. And so kind of, uh, I guess, aiming to keep it reduced to its most kind of digestible level, it's, it's to say that, those experiences get stored in the body. And if they aren't addressed, then that storage unit will start to give feedback back to you, which will dictate the way that you perceive reality and the way that you experience your emotions or the way that you perceive your external environment, right? And so an unchecked uh, imbalance, or as we said in the very beginning, like if something's, if there's a, if let's say there's a deeply bound emotion that has not been addressed, that's created an imbalance. And let's say we're talking about the pelvic floor, so let's say it's in the pelvic floor. Most often what someone's going to do is siphon that area off unconsciously, and it's going to become numb. Or they go the totally the other way, and it becomes completely overactive, and they exhibit behavior that's just like out of control, whatever it is, you know, overactive, however that manifests. Sure. So we'll say that's an imbalance. I'll take that. You know, and so from the perspective of yoga or the tradition of hatha yoga or specifically the tradition of tantric hatha yoga is they're 
it's really looking to both uh, heal the material, heal the body, create space in the body, create energy in the body, create vitality, which in turn would bring the psyche through a process of healing. And that's the measure right there in terms of when someone goes through a class, you might do a posture and something you haven't thought about in 15 years goes flying through your perception now, depending on what the class is or depending on how you're being instructed or depending on what the, where, how you're being guided in that moment and depending on how much you're interested in your own sort of awakening, someone's either going to have that experience and be like, get me the fuck out of here or like, ah, oh, great, here is this thing. What do I need to do to resolve it or tend to it or heal it? You know? And so the physical practice can be completely evocative and is intended to be as, as a path towards healing. Now, you know, for most people who are doing yoga mm. in America, and let's say there's 37 million Americans who are doing yoga mm. regularly yeah. at Crunch Gym, yep. largely, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. whatever the big yoga, you know, chain, sure. mall chain stores are like. Sure. And they're not thinking about healing in this way through their yoga practice. Yeah. And in fact, I think most folks in our society, tend to think of the body work mm-hmm. as having, you know, it's physical fitness. Yeah. And then if you want to go through this emotional healing stuff, you sit down and talk to somebody or you get prescribed some pills, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Yeah. There's this essentially division. Yeah. Some of us, we get into a yoga experience and things happen that nobody told us would happen. Mm. Mm-hmm. And we kind of go, what was that about? And it mm-hmm. shifts our understanding of mm-hmm. what it is to have a body, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But not everybody is necessarily even open to seeing that that's possible. For sure. And they kind of overlook it or don't notice it or suppress it or whatever. Whatever it is, yeah. So I'm wondering how, for you, mm. did you come to that understanding of yoga? In terms of its true potential. For healing. For healing. Um, <laughs> uh, that's a long answer. That's a long story. Okay, well, sure. listen, we got for a lot sure. of time. Man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I leveraged everything I could find, for sure. So I, I, I came to yoga uh, essentially on a threat. Really? In a, in a, I was in a relationship, and I, was, I could look back in retrospect, and I could say, oh, I had a ton of anger. And I had a lot of resentment and I had a facade uh, of my outward expression of myself that presented itself as strong and fit and totally in control and totally put together. And underneath it, there was this rage and resentment that was all the result of essentially my father's death. So I can track you know at coming in, I did not have the awareness that I was holding that kind of resentment towards that seed wound. Right, dad dies at eight. Oh wow! Big traumatic experience, totally alters the course of my life. I'm progressively getting kind of more anxious as I'm getting older. You were right? you had a career path, if I remember. For sure, for sure. So I was working. Yeah, I was working in the internet industry in the late '90s. Right. So my career path was ultimately. I moved to New York to join. Well, I had the idea to come to New York to join a startup. This was like '97. Right. And I was like, I'm going to join a startup. That startup's going to go public. I'm going to make a ton of money and I'm going to be all set. So that was, that's how I 
came here to New York. At the time, I had just started doing yoga, and I was, and that again, that was kind of based on this threat. The woman I was with at the time was like, "Look, you're pretty aggressive, to say the least. Like, <clears throat> you got to figure out something you can do to calm yourself down." And she was like, "I said I would, I would suggest yoga," and I was like, "All right, fine, I'll try it." And I went in, and I was just rejected it wholeheartedly. I was like, "Fuck this." get me out of this room. I was asked to fold forward in a forward fold. I needed to bend my knees <clears throat> like to my ankles in order to fold forward. So you were stiff. I was stiff and uh, I was soaked in sweat and I was watching all these people around me that were seemingly moving through this with ease. It was like the quintessential story of the dude that walks into the yoga class and just is like an embarrassment to himself. I know. Well, this, well, well, this was me too. My first yoga classes, you know, I mean, for like the first two years, yeah. I would do, I, well, first of all, I couldn't touch my toes, but every movement I made and I watched people around me do the movement so well and I would be like suffering and then yeah. I get into a, posi- a posture and I'm just kind of, like, I got it. I was like, and then we, we would hold it. Yeah. We would hold it. And I would be muttering swears under my breath. Sure. Yeah. I'm sure driving everybody around me insane. Yeah. Well, right? it's like, I mean, that that's like the quintessence. I mean, that that image has become cliche. You know, this was also back in the, this was 20, some, 20 years ago, you know? And so even where yoga is in the culture now compared to where it was then, you know, for for anybody in in this day and age, it's very much part of the vernacular and part of the culture. And so it's like, I mean, there it is, right there, right. The two of us, prime example of of a couple of egos, you know, that are just, I mean, everyone like that's the thing about the ego structure, right? Is that it is a thing that is very much part of us, and I'm not into the, like the vilification of it or that it needs to be like exercised out of our being. It's very much an integral part of our being able to walk into a yoga studio, make a choice. You know, it gives us a position in the material world that gives us a sense of who we are and where we are in space. And it's more, so, so in my opinion, the development of yoga on a deeper level, you know, isn't, it doesn't necessarily need to be about like the, 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 you know, the monk on the mountaintop that has renounced all identity, but in our in our examples of just the two of us walking into these yoga classes, we had to we came in to do a physical practice, and we were immediately met by a resistance by some other part of ourselves. It wasn't your body that was well. Your body was probably tight, you know, but the body wasn't having the body wasn't swearing, you know. It was some other part of you. No, it was all right? about you know what triggers me. Yeah, getting triggered, not even realizing. That I'm being triggered. Yeah. At that time, I just thought I was right. Sure. And this is a mess. And, sure. Ah, wow. Why am I doing this? And like, I'm such lousy shape. I got to do something. Yeah. And maybe they're like, and so I think again, this I I have a hard time staying away from the deeper conversation. But I I look at that, or I look at myself, and I say, well, I my old pattern and my old habit was I if I wasn't excellent, I wasn't good. I wasn't valuable. I didn't have worth. And so. If I'm not doing something well and it's not going well, then the anger and the resentment is actually born out of a deeper lack of self-worth that's revealing itself through this moment, momentary aggression, whatever it is. And so that level of awareness 
And that level of presence to what is, to me, is the inevitability of the development of a yoga practice. Now, to your like point of this original thread of the sort of, let's just say the sort of commodity of it, or the the fact that there are thousands upon thousands of studios out there that don't have a dialogue about these deeper layers at all, and they're just promoting the physical practice, I don't take any issue with those environments because they're kind of providing that gateway experience for the person and and they're they're a safe place for someone to come and and start in on that conversation right so a crunch gym maybe i mean fuck maybe it is as simple as like i just really want to get in shape and i want to be flexible and that's fine you know like that's in at least in my opinion as a teacher i'm like great a healthy body is a gateway to a healthy a healthier life. And so if it's just about the body, like I'm not forming opinions about that at all. I I would be more, if I'm in that environment teaching, my eyes are going to be peeled for those that are thirsting for something a little deeper than that. And, and so do I have any issue with the crunches of the world? No. Do I think that there's a ton of potential that's not being leveraged or not being kind of actualized? Yes, for sure. And so that's that's why I do what I do for sure at this stage of the game is like I'm going to have the deeper conversation, you know. It took me a long time to actually figure out mm. that the way that yoga developed, mm. right, was from meditation to movement. Yeah, reverse engineered. Yeah, yeah. because the idea was essentially okay. You're going to meditate. You're starting to attain certain kinds of experiences. Mm. The best way to hold those experiences is to get your body in a place where it can be most receptive to them. Yeah. yeah. So you can train, essentially, your body so that mm. your meditation practice becomes better and better and better. Yeah. But it, the reverse happens here, and probably has for the last 100 years, I don't know what it's like in India, mm. where folks come at it only through the body yeah. work. It's like, oh, look at how yeah. good shape it is. It's like, oh, wait a minute. You mean there's like meditation associated with this? Like mm, this right. has something to do with meditation? What right. a crazy idea. Yeah. First time it hit me, I was like, that felt totally counterintuitive, yeah. right? Because yeah. I think of working out as like, okay, you know, either you're doing an, like a whole series of tough asanas and you're getting strong and movement, or you know, you got a bunch of weights or you're, you know, you're playing basketball or whatever it is. I mean, you're getting yourself sweaty and you're really working hard and then you're going to go and chill out and relax and go take a bath. It makes it possible. Right. right? That makes it possible. Yeah. It has nothing to do with higher states of consciousness. Right. I mean, that's the way so much of the way yoga is presented now Mm. and it comes across. Mm. So let's get back to your healing. Mm, Kenny. (laughs) Going for the details. Going for the details, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, you yeah. know, we only got a couple hours. No, for sure. So um, so I started doing yoga, and it started to break me open. And this was like 98, or 98 through 2001. I was pretty much straight up working full-time, you know, working 12-hour days at this startup and going to yoga class and going to yoga retreats maybe every once in a while. And it was like starting to take hold. I've told this story before, but I I can't go past 2001 without mentioning being downtown for 9-11. And so in terms of my healing, being downtown and witnessing the towers from like three or four blocks away when they fell. And so I was in, I 
like that that visual. I and, didn't know that. Actually. Yeah, I didn't yeah. realize. That. Oh man. Yeah, I had on that day. Uh, I mean, I left work when it was happening, and I was walking downtown, and I was just kind of in mesmerized by the fact that this event was happening, and I was I was not more than a few blocks away, and it and the toll that that took on me emotionally. I can look back now and say that was that that was the turning point in my life in terms of me essentially doing an about face on where I was going with my life, which was quite frankly just in pursuit of wealth. I'll just say shorthand. You know, I was going for a career, I was going to make money, and that was what I was into. And yet there was something very much within my being that felt like that was not enough even back then. And so I think that the direct experience of seeing that happen required me to take a look at myself and I basically just asked myself well fuck I mean I also are I was also in a situation where our CEO uh, essentially tanked our stock value by selling 200 million dollars worth of his own stock so there was also that egregious thing that happened and so it was actually the, the those two events that so the company was imploding well, the you know what what ended up ha- yeah I mean what ended up happening was I watched uh, paper wealth for myself you know but psychologically I wasn't uh, I wasn't uh, complex enough to really be able to parse out that paper wealth doesn't mean I'm not pumped for retirement money you right. know what I mean I was yeah, still yeah. like counting that money in the bank right you had all that all, all that equity all, in the company yeah. that you had sweated sweated over yeah. was worth a ton on. In the paper. abstract, on yeah, paper, but yeah. you hadn't actually been able it's, to turn that into right. like a paycheck. Yet. Right, right. And so I, those were the two pillars and uh, in terms of my own awakening was our stock going from 116 to 6, you know, and as a result of that sale, I would say, I mean, I don't know, it's a big thing to say, I guess, on, on live on live and direct, but I, I, I certainly held that in my emotional body for quite some time as a resentment and then watching all these people die in front of me and you know the world's a complex place and people die all the time and and we're in it we are in a bubble living here in the united states that is you know a a a pretty um luxurious bubble you know and so that's but that's where i grew up and that's how i grew up and so to see an event like this and it's to such proportion and such uh, intensity, while then also going through this, um, uh, you know, a little bit down the line, going through this big dissolution of wealth. I basically watched, I watched people die, and I watched wealth dematerialize right in front of me. Within, you know, and so those things were like, they they resulted in me saying there's something deeper here and and I need to go after it. And basically I said, what do I love to do the most? And at the time I loved doing yoga and I loved writing music. And 20 years later, I, I teach yoga and I write music and I consult uh, ironically, you know, not ironically, but funny enough, you know, my C, my work with CEOs, I didn't realize until I was four months or like four years into that work that, oh, fuck, I'm actually just working out this old wound, you know, on like aiming to heal the consciousness of business leaders. And it's like, ah, what are the seeds of that intent? You know, how far back do those go? So you're talking about my healing 
And I know I'm going a little bit like through time and space, but I can look back to that time, right? And say, oh, wow, okay, because of those deaths and those wounds, I was motivated to do something with that held more purpose for me. That, yeah. So like that was, this was the turning point. This was the turning point. And then, you know, in terms of, but then was that an easy transition no, for you? No. I mean, it had me it had me going against the grain of everything I had ever been taught and everything I knew was the way things were supposed to be. How did all your friends react? Well, my, I mean, like yeah. you know, people around you, were they kind of like No, there were some interventions. Uh-huh. There were some interventions and there were some conversations. And I think like to keep a thread in this conversation, I think that the, to your very first question about the physicality of yoga. My ability to perceive the complexity of my experience was rooted in the fact that my body had been opened and softened enough to be perceptive to the complexity of all of these different emotions. So my ability to be present and to be able to perceive accurately and then and have that level of internal listening to what's really going on here hands down was rooted in the softness and the opening of the physical structure. And until that happened, I was stuck. So I would say, absolutely, the physical practice is essential. It's an essential part of the equation. And then there's more, you know? Yeah, to your point about like the resistance I, 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 I met initially was great. I had friends that were like, you've lost your fucking mind. I had my family going, oh, there goes Kevin again. Like, mm-hmm. free spirit, okay, he's just doing what he wants. And then 20 years later, I'm doing what I'm doing in the world, and everybody's come around. Everybody that initially talked to me now really says, well, one, they see how I'm 46, and I'm healthy, and I'm happy, and I'm integrated, and I'm whole, and I have an emotional capacity to process emotions and I can meet complex realities with a sense of ease. All of that is based on these embodiment practices. And then, I mean, shit. There's, oh, yeah. Well, proof is in the pudding. You know, yeah. like people can see how you're doing and yeah. you're, you're doing really well. So, well, and I mean, so, clearly, and, yeah. and, and so, I mean, I only say that to, to, to illuminate that point of the sort of efficacy of that root which started as an embodiment practice. So I didn't ever come into it with even a notion that there was something bigger to attain or that I would be entering into deeper states of consciousness or that I would be experiencing reality in a completely different way that enabled me to move through it with more efficiency or efficacy. And Do you think if you knew that when you started, it would have turned you off? I don't know. I, pro- it, I don't know. If it, sometimes I, I wonder, yeah, you know, like yeah. for me, in my own quirky mm advancement and what advancement is probably the wrong word, but say, let's just see the journey, right? Mm. Um, I never have known what's around the next corner, Mm -hmm. right? And for a long time, I think it was almost as if the universe had conspired to make sure I'd have no clue Mm. what was next Mm. so that I would be receptive to it when it showed up and kind of forced itself into my field of awareness. Right, right, right. Because otherwise I may not have engaged with it. Yeah. Right. And I then needed to have, I needed to have it show up for me in my way where like, honestly, it was a total shock. Yeah. And then I'm able to like compare notes with other people who'd been down the same journey, effectively parallel paths and ask them about it. 
and go like, hey, did you ever see that? And it's like, oh yeah, I saw that, or I had that experience. It's like, oh really? Right? Boom, validation. And have the validation happen again and again and again. Sure. I'm an empiricist by nature. Sure. I need to have something around me confirmed. Sure. So it's not just, you know, what I think it was my projections of my own yeah. madness, yeah. you know, which could be considerable. So <laughs> I have, you know, enough of a internal bullshit detector that I'm able to kind of parse out the stuff that maybe, I hope at least, to maybe my projection, right? As, as, right. to the extent that I yeah. am personally capable of, yeah, right. between the stuff that I think is going on, yeah. maybe going on, and the stuff that seems that other folks are also confirming through their own experience. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, well, and I think I think we're at we're at a different time now. You know, I think your development and my development happened at a certain period of time in the collective. We were at a different stage, and so you know, to your to your question, I think is it relevant to map out the potentiality of these practices or to put forward a clear, concise either description or practices which lead to deeper dimensions of experience with consciousness or or to even have this conversation and to say the physical practice is a gateway to something much deeper the value of that conversation is not i i don't think it it lands in terms of well does that end up getting in the way for someone does that set with someone else does it set someone up to have an expectation or is that going to get in the way of their progress? Or is that going to is that going to cause revolt or whatever it is? And I think no, I think it's education. I think that by by having this conversation, by talking about it, someone hearing it then is educated to a certain extent. And then when they go to have the experience, they have a better internal map to actually have the experience. You know. So when I'm teaching in terms of how yoga delineates the human being into these layers, right? And so, so it would say there's a physical structure, there's an energetic structure, there's a mental structure, there's mind, and then there's intelligence. So they they dissect or bifurcate mind and intelligence as two separate things, which is critical because you look at intelligence as being the house for will or for discernment, the ability to see or the ability to, to, to your point of like you being self-reflective and saying, Oh, okay. This this is that over here, and that's different than this over here. I can see that clearly because there's a function of my consciousness that that's its role. That's different than mind in yoga. They put that in a different category. And mind in yoga is what the term manas is more the function of the sort of editorial or the dialogue. And it would say the mind behaves in a specific way. It bifurcates. It says something's either good or something's either bad, or it either is attracted to something or it rejects something. And so when you look at the personality, you look at like how characteristics move through someone. If someone has to always be on a, uh, this is right and this is wrong, the, the system of yoga says, okay, that's the function of mind, right? That's commentary, that's editorial, that's distinctly different than intelligence or discernment or a witness. So it pulls out this this. So concept. it's almost like the intelligence is our skills or tools or something. It's, it, is, it is the tool. It is the tool. It's the fundamental aspect where we have the capacity to witness our experience and distinguish and discern one thing from the other. 
Whereas the mind in this in the model of yoga is intrinsically tied to well, it's tied to the senses, it's tied to memory, it has a certain behavior of polarizing something good or something bad. So the the cocktail or the recipe of your senses, I mean, imagine all the information of your senses, right? And we we bring you're trying to get off coffee, let's say, and we bring like a fresh brewed bulletproof latte, you know, in in the room. All of a sudden you're like, yeah, there it is, right? The tie of the senses to the mind is one thing. And then on the other, it says your mind is also tied to memory. The catalog of history that you have in your memory is going to influence the way in which your mind perceives reality. Now, what we've been doing in this entire conversation has been talking about mind and body. Right. So now we're really starting to like open up the dimensionality of what the tradition itself kind of has to offer the even the layman in terms of how it gives you a construct or a map to your being. And then if we drill a little bit further into that map, it goes into the most subtle aspect, which is pure consciousness, which is yoga would say Atman or this this uh essentially this, your individual representation of the whole, like your unit of whole, of, of the whole. So this notion of, of unified consciousness or the unified field, yoga as a pathway for you to experience unification or yoga or a sense of all is one is less about you accessing someplace that's outside of yourself and more about bringing into balance all of those layers. So it says we're going to harmonize the body, harmonize the energy, focus the mind, awaken intelligence, and as all of that comes into harmony or comes into balance right where we started, what is revealed is the other, and that other would be pure consciousness. And when you're there, that's where it starts. For me, that's where it starts to get interesting because that's then the launching point to the next set of practices, which nowadays when, I mean, we, t- we were talking about quantum healing and, you know, me healing my knee, the next level of practices are what everybody's talking right, right about right now in terms of the quantum realm of healing. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Yeah, so let's let's dive into that. Yeah. Um, yeah. You just had a profound physical yeah. healing that, you know, I'm not talking out of school here because I've seen you post about it on Facebook, that came from an accident. Mm-hmm. You then applied mm-hmm. this practice yeah. in order to bring the healing on. Yeah. And learn a lot from that. We were talking about this the other day. Yeah. I would love for you to kind of recap this. For sure. For folks. For sure. Let's dive into that. Yeah. Yeah. 
So I tore my LCL, which is lateral collateral ligament, on my left knee, which is essentially like the main stabilizing ligament on the outside of the knee. Where was this? When, when did this happen? This was in Colorado, in Aspen. I was doing a five rhythms practice. I was dancing essentially on concrete that was carpeted in a room that was probably a little small for its own good and filled with you know, it was quite a big group of people. So it was I just a party. Kind it of. was it was a, a five rhythms kind yeah, of party. Yeah. Rhythms party. So it wasn't yeah. like in the middle of a yoga practice. Right. You know, like right. you, weren't, you weren't teaching a class. No, 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 no. no. This was what happened. Was I mean, I'm like I'm embodied, right? And so I'm used to using my body. And for the five rhythms practice, I'm used to doing that on a sprung wood floor. Okay, f- five rhythms is five rhythms is essentially like a movement meditation. That brings you, it's another form of embodiment. So it uses music to get you, it uses music and it uses the archetypes of these five rhythms to bring you into your body. So in the way that a yoga pose would leverage, or that yoga would leverage a yoga pose, five rhythms would say, okay, we're going to leverage these five rhythms, these five archetypes of embodiment, and that's going to be the way to bring you into your body. Yeah, from a, from a distance, if you look through the window, it looks like a dance party. It looks like a dance party, yeah. yeah. And if it's really cooking, it looks like a freaky dance party oh, that is yeah, going to yeah. either attract you or repel you. <laughs> you <know? laughs> and so, you know, if it's... Yeah, considering re- who you're dating, I assume that it attracted you. Right, right, yeah. What happened was I just made a move that I would have normally made on sprung wood, but it was concrete. Ooh. And my ligament was not having it. And so, anyway, I... Tore the, the LCL. Did and you go down, like hit the ground? What? No, it didn't reveal itself until a little bit later, which is, I guess is pretty common for these ligament injuries. They have to cool first sometimes. You know, this was a grade two. So it wasn't a full tear. It was, a ha- it was basically a partial tear. So a full tear is a grade three and you need surgery is the only way you can heal that. And so I had a partial tear. It was torn pretty much just like ha- exactly halfway. You saw a doctor. Got an MRI, saw a doctor. What'd they say? Said, you've torn your ligament. <laughs> yeah. You'll be in an immobile brace for two months. So not straighten the knee for two months. And then when you're done with that, another probably four months in a movable brace was his diagnosis. And that was based on the intensity of my pain and the grade of tear that he was perceiving on the, on the MRI. And so for those six months in which you're in a brace... Yeah. He's basically gone. It's going to take you some time to heal. This thing is just going to take time. Six months to a year was his was his prognosis. And, and don't move it. Uh, for two months, don't move it. For two months, don't move it. And for four months, move it very carefully. Yeah. All right. So now, so what happened? So I basically, I basically went immediately into research on what is happening right now in the realm of healing. Like what what are some techniques that people are doing? And there's a guy, Joe Dispenza, who is I, I teach with him actually on Gaia. He's one of one of the teachers that has he's got a lot of content on on Gaia. He's been in this conversation for years. Absolutely, I would say a, a phenomenal source in this realm. And so I dove into his work and I dove into neurobiology and the sort of biology of transcendent states and quantum healing and essentially how to how to use the mind to heal the body. What ended up happening was I was doing all this research and I practice a practice called yoga nidra, which is a very specific form of yoga that essentially has you putting the mind and the body 
into a state of sleep while staying aware. You mean like numbness sleep or I mean like- No, like fully conscious, awake, aware, but the body and mind has gone to sleep. Yeah, that's a whole nother conversation. Okay. <laughs> that's, so, yeah, but, okay. but it's one of yeah. the most, I mean, uh-huh. uh, if, if I could be a proponent of what I think is the future of like what is one of the most, we talked about yoga for healing, yoga nidra as a healing practice. Well, it's very misunderstood in, in the culture. It's used in a lot of ways that are probably outside of the traditional use in terms of its true efficacy and its true potential. But ultimately, it's a form of yoga that, it's a form of practice. I would say you do a series of practices, which are as simple as relaxing the body. You're lying down. You're putting the body into a relaxed state. And then maybe you go into thread consciousness through the body by visualizing points of awareness, like point of blue light at the midbrain, right shoulder, right elbow, right wrist. So you're going through the body with your awareness. And all the while, the body is slowly surrendering into a deeper state. And so what's happening is we're going from like beta brain waves, which are like fast brain waves, and we're slowing that down. So we're slowing the frequency of our brain waves down. Down the theta? I mean, if you're, you know, you never know, Kenny. But but any any sort, you know, you you basically start on that trajectory to start to, um, which will inevitably sort of change the potentiality of all sorts of things. You can create healing frequencies in the body through this intent, right? So, healing frequencies is acquiring a state where your body becomes coherent, and in that coherence then you open yourself up to a certain potentiality to leverage intent to create something else to happen. So I've had had a lot of practice of putting the body in a certain state already, I guess is my point to bringing it up. And I think one of the key benefits of that yoga nidra practice is it sharpens your ability to be aware and to be so aware and awake in all senses right? So I can feel a feeling and I can be very present and aware and awake to it versus being numbed out to a feeling or being unconscious of a feeling, right? So while it relaxes you and it does all these things, it's also sharpening your awareness and it's sharpening the acuity of your or the capacity of your awareness and your presence. So cut to October, the end of October, where I've torn the LCL and I go online to do all this research and I'm looking at leveraging the body to heal, using the body to heal the body or using the mind-body connection to facilitate healing. And I come, come across all this research that essentially is very similar to what the potency of yoga nidra has to offer. But in the, in the sort of, um, in all the reading that I'm doing, I'm basically looking at this content going, the, everything that they're saying is, in order for this to work, in order for you to connect to your body and have an intent to heal, you have to make that suggestion from a place that is beneath ego or beneath mind. So you have to be able to subvert or come into a different state of consciousness. You have to be operating from a different place, so not from the mind and not from the ego. So you first have to be able to enter into meditation in order to do these healing techniques. And I was like, well, fuck, I've got that down, you know? So then what are these healing techniques? So 
there I was lying down for essentially one month. I stayed put for three hours a day. I went into meditation and what I was doing was what I was instructed to do in the research was close my eyes and go into a meditative state and visualize my body in full range of motion. So what I would do is I would put on an hour-long mix of music, and I would either visualize myself going into a five rhythms practice or into a yoga practice or into, uh, I do this other thing called the class, which is like a fitness-based kind of spiritual cathartic fitness class. So, but it's very, it's very specific and it has very specific moves. So things like squats or jumping jacks or whatever it was. And, and you so, just go through the whole sequence in your mind. So I, yeah. So I would go in, I would drop in and I would essentially create this experience of doing this class. So for the average person, that's a lot of concentration for sure. And it, and, and so, yes, it does require concentration. It does require focus. And it does require the capacity to sort of stay, have that, like you were saying in your story, like that staying power to be with what is, right? But what ended up ha- what ends up happening is as you're in it, so let's say I'm in the let's say I'm in the class. I'm in, I'm I'm having an experience, an imagined or a visioned experience of the class. My body, I'm feeling like I'm in the class, right? I'm not moving necessarily, but I'm feeling myself. I'm feeling my skin a little like soft and, you know, it's like getting, it's perspiring a little, like I'm going into another state. I'm doing the breath, right? So I'm using breath for sure. And so essentially what happens is you get to a point where you've accumulated a state of feeling. Mm-hmm. So let's say I'm in, I'm imagining the five rhythms class. I'm in, I'm at the end of it. I'm in ecstasy or I'm in joy, or I'm in this place where like I'm, I'm jumping and dancing and moving my body in my mind, but I'm also having an emotional experience that is creating a lot of joy. So the technique is that you then take that emotional experience, the content of joy, you come back to the present tense of reality, come back to now, and instruct the body to take the information from the emotion and essentially create a pathway towards healing. So... You take, you future yourself, you take the emotion from your future self, you bring it to your present self, and then you have the intent, whatever the intent is. For me, it was to heal my knee. So I watched my knee in motion in my mind. I produced joy. I felt that feeling. I brought it back to my present self and I said, okay, body, take the information that you need to take from that emotional experience and do what you need to do to heal the knee. And I'm in the midst of all of this research and this data. So you could have Joe Dispenza on and he could talk about what's happening on a biological level in terms of, in terms of neuropeptides and the chemical, the, the chemical change in the brain and how that's shifting the way proteins are being absorbed into the body and how that's affecting genetic expression. And he could be the one to speak on all of that better than I could. But what ended up what ended up happening, well, there's two things that happened. One is all of this is actually the practices of samadhi in one in one way, in one way. Mm-hmm. So we're actually talking about the last stage of yoga under a different name. And it's two and a half months later, whatever it is, what it, you know, and I'm walking and my knee is completely healed and I feel fantastic. And you went back to another five rhythms class. 
went to a I went to a six hour workshop as a matter of fact on Sunday and you know not as a point of pride but as like fuck man hum actually being humbled to say like this happened this happened I healed that tissue and I'm in awe of that potentiality I'm in awe I mean of that it's capacity. it's actually kind of when we talked about this the other day yeah. I was blown away yeah. that the doctor basically told you it's gonna take you six months to a year yeah to recover from that injury yeah Two and a half months later, you're dancing. Yeah. And you went to the doctor. I went to the doctor and he was a bit uh, perplexed in some ways. He was like, you're easily three months ahead of schedule. What'd you do? And I was like, well, do you want to respect me or not? Because I could tell you what I did, but I doubt you'd maintain respect. <laughs> because you, know? you basically— because it would be a little, I mean, be a little far-fetched. Yeah, because what know? I got, I mean, you know, and I appreciate the nuance of— the description, but basically what I got was you were lying in bed yeah. for two or so months meditating on the injury yeah. in a way that healed it. Yeah. And it healed. Yeah. This yeah. is powerful stuff. And yeah, okay, so like I'll read a Joe Dispenza book and I'll go like, well, okay, that seems wild and interesting, but I actually don't know anybody. Mm. Until now, that's done it. Has actually done it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's like, oh, you know, it's, like the yeah. power of intention. Yeah. But it's not just having the intention; it's having the skill set with the practices yeah. enables essentially consciousness to shape the material world. Yeah. And particularly, your body yeah. responds to consciousness, yes. to your awareness, to your intention. Yes. And this notion that we have, you know, mm-hmm. in the world in which I grew up, basically I grew up Descartian, mm-hmm. right? There's a mind-body split, mm-hmm. right? The mind does its thing. The body is mechanical. Mm-hmm. The material world is mechanical. Mm-hmm. My thinking about my healing, especially something as material as a muscle tear, yeah. ain't going to really make that much difference because there's just a certain amount of time a muscle tear takes to heal. Right. You know, everything else is a fantasy, yeah. right? Well, you know, in so many ways, my worldview has completely flipped, right? But the reality that I'm now, you know, coming more and more in contact with Mm. is just how malleable the material is to consciousness. And so if we tie that back, since we are in in this yogic conversation, right, the text that you're referring to when you talked about how we've, the yoga kind of reverse engineered, it went from the unified experience of experiencing cosmic consciousness or God consciousness. And it started to verbalize that in song. And then 3,000, 4,000 years later, a text came out that said, here's what to do with your body. That text itself has the word pradipika in it, which is light. So we're talking about a body of light. When you talk about matter versus energy and intent, so if what we're doing is we're, we're marrying or we're, we're really getting skillful about how we're playing with energy and matter and intent. And the, the notion that matter has density, and so this gets us back through this whole conversation to say emotions and emotions trapped in the body create density. Density creates weight or heaviness or stuckness or inertia or a heavy mood or whatever it is. 
yoga or whatever you're doing, whatever, whatever sort of methodology you're using to awaken the body, to revitalize the body, to generate energy, whether it's quantum meditation or yoga or whatever it is, the, the, the actual core fundamental thing that is going on is that we're breaking apart the density of matter and we're creating more space for light. When you then you look at the so when I was saying frequency before, this is a little bit of what I meant is the frequency of light or the frequency of, of a higher frequency of energy versus the lower frequency of, let's say, an emotion like anger or a, a density like rage. Like that has a heavier weight to it, a heavier density to its frequency, right? And so if the body is ultimately matter, in this case, as we're holding up these models, it's matter, but then it's also, as we know, based on physics, a shitload of space. And so if we it's are... It's mostly space. It's mostly space. So what we're actually doing, we can say what we're doing in yoga or meditation is calming ourselves down or we're freedom from stress or, you know, we can come into all those sort of what in general people promote yoga as doing. And I'm kind of sitting where I'm sitting going, okay, yes, and. Because all the later stage teachings talk about this stuff. Let me say all the later stage teachings, you mean in all uh, yeah. the different lineages or so specific lineages? Yeah, thank you. I'm thinking about I'm thinking about it from my tradition of both Tantra and and Vedanta or the the notion of like the eight limbs of yoga, right? So the eightfold path, as I have, as I call it, which is this program that goes through eight limbs of yoga, right? Is like that goes from early stage teaching, first and second limb, which say, here's how to be a good person in the world and have some sort of moral and ethical compass, to the eighth limb, which is samadhi, which says, once you've entered into absorption or once you've entered into deep meditation, once you've subverted or gone underneath the ego and the mind, and you've actually merged with consciousness, from that place, you can do X, Y, and Z. So when I say the teachings on the later stages, I say that there's a whole set of teachings that say, once you've acquired the capacity to come into that level of focus and meditation, then use it. And using it would be one of, would be samadhi. It's a tool. So you said the word tool before. So so this samadhi means exactly samadhi means it means a lot of different things but I would say absorption I would say the f- the full unification of the individual consciousness merged with cosmic consciousness or it's the state the state but it's also as yoga is a state right yoga is a state of union body mind spirit right you individually you've unified with consciousness your individual unit has merged with the collective. You've become part of the unified field. Okay, here's my, yeah, here's my idiot question. Yeah. Aren't we always merged? And is it a question of just being aware of it? So that get, we, we talked exactly about that, right? Is the, the, those five layers that we talked about. So yes, that central seed of consciousness is a unit of the whole that is ever-present and is also outside of time and space. So that's a whole nother dimension of the conversation. But that our only our only issue is that either the physical or the energetic or the mental or the emotional has obstructed the view. So yes, to your point of aren't we always there? Absolutely. Absolutely. So there is, in effect, nothing to do unless there's something that needs to be done. 
you know, which is like if there's incongruencies or there's imbalances or we're— Which are always there. If we're human, <laughs> if we're human, right, yeah. right. So you know, yeah. for me, in my own process of, in my own process of going from basically a communist, secularist, secular materialist, you know, person in the 20th century that was back then, to whatever the hell I am now, the first bunch of sort of milestone moments for me were becoming aware that there's this other stuff going on beyond my own. Mm. materialist paradigm. And I'm thinking, oh, I'm accessing that thing now that I didn't know was there. Right. And then later I got to the point where I realized, oh, you know what? It was there all the time. And there were these blockages. Yeah. I was going through a, essentially a purification process that was removing the blockages so I could actually see what was always there. Totally. And now I'm kind of at the point where it's like, oh, wow, there's even more there that's always there. That occasionally I get to tap and it's like, okay, can I develop the presence to be in this moment at such a level of calmness, essentially? Well, that's the thing, right? Is like you have to be able to, your nervous system and your emotional equilibrium and your mind have to have the capacity to maintain a state of balance amidst the impact of what it's like to be unified with such a powerful field. So oftentimes people will have the experience of being, they'll have that hit of like that perfect moment where they're, 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 they're in meditation or maybe they're doing something and they realize they're fully merged. And then they have that moment of like, oh fuck, I'm merged. And then they're kicked out. You know, and oh so, yeah, like, I mean, know that. Yeah, been there. Yeah, and so the so on one level, you can look at that and you can say, from my perspective, I would look at that and I would say, oh, that's just a measure of the nervous system and the physical structure of the body and the acuity of the mind becoming open enough and sharp enough to sustain the impact of that experience. And when you when you then take that into the everyday. And you take it into relationship and you take it into engaging in the world. That stability is what shows up in the face of complexity. And so whether it's a whether it's in a relationship with someone or whether it's a whether it's a, a leader of an organization or you know, any anyone like that, like that capacity to be effective and efficient and present and open and stable to me comes from back to the point that we've been running this whole time, the slow relief or release of the density in the physical structure and creating that where you essentially create space for more light and more energy and more intelligence to occupy that space. The value Mm. of being able to stay in that space, having that openness, Mm -hmm. aside from it feeling pretty good. Is is a higher quality of... Life and relationship and can I, but sorry to interrupt. What were you going to say? No, no, no. I think it's yeah. definitely part of it. But what I what I like to tell myself, and again, maybe this is my deceiving myself, is that there's something that you can be in in deliberate conscious communication with that everything else that's around you in such a way that you can begin to develop what's happening for yourself. Yeah, I see where you're going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So back to the back to the quantum healing and back to intent and back to back to yeah, what on on a fundamental level what we're doing with these 
with these practices, when we get to this level of sophistication or of subtlety, is ultimately sharpening the, we're sharpening the tip of the arrow, right? So that where our intent sits, like we hit that mark. Uh, Well, I think also too, the other thing that comes to mind is that one of the other byproducts of coming so close to creation is becoming closer to a deeper sense of purpose. And so you end up inevitably merging purpose and the power of intent and the capacity to execute. And to me, those are like the pillars of my work right there. You know, that's that if I'm to do anything in this world to promote a, any sort of impact as an individual unit in this society, it's that. You know, it's like, oh, okay, wow, I get it. I see it. I understand it. I see what needs to be done in order to create the environment or create the condition for that capacity to be organic and essential and someone's sort of uh, natural way in the world versus over-efforting or over-trying or overworking or whatever it is, you know? And one of the interesting things about doing this work now Mm. in this moment of history is how the whole society is almost organized directly in conflict to, Uh to people being able to hold that open space. Yeah. We have a culture that is effectively denying the possibility Hmm. that this is a real thing. Yeah. It's frankly totally marginalized in terms of, you know, Hmm. what quote unquote serious people think is worth giving attention to as opposed to say drilling more oil in order to keep the economy you know, robust and yeah. God knows, yeah. you know, like all those things is yeah. that, you know, frankly, keep people in Washington busy. Yeah. You know, the byproduct of that mm. is this kind of, let's just say, energetic dissidence mm-hmm. that, you know, messes with your field. Yeah. yeah. That keeps you from being able to stay in that open place, in that open heart place yeah. where you can really connect to a higher purpose mm. and hold it and pay your rent, mm, you know? Mm, mm. I mean, this is this yeah. is the interesting thing about what we're in the midst of. Yeah. When you're working with, let's say, like we were just, you mentioned it before, when you're working with C-level CEO type people, yeah. consulting with them on their practice, yeah. they're like right in the middle of that kind uh, of conflict. 100%, 100%, which is why I'm there, which is why for me personally, which is like... For me personally, that is my purpose, right? Is I'm looking at them. I have a client that works with world leaders from all of these countries that I'm like, oh, okay, this is the work we are doing is rippling into her conversations with world leaders. That means something. That means something. And she's a brilliant, brilliant woman who has grinded for four or five years at getting to her center. So she had the will and she had the intent and her the effect of her own greater understanding of self, greater understanding of her own potential and her essentially her healing process has led her closer to a sense of purpose, which undeniably I've watched her change the shape of how she manages that organization and is changing the organization's intent 
So her individual work is absolutely creating a ripple in the field in terms of the field that you're talking about. And, and that's huge, man. That's huge. And so in terms of like, I went through fucking 10 years of despondency, you know, myself of just being like, this whole system is fucked and the yoga world is fucked and it's full of ego and everybody's so sick and so inflated. And like, there's so many teachers that have got it so wrong and they're just creating more dissonance and more ego. And that, I mean, in every realm, you know, I was just like, this is horrible. And it would have me stuck in my own mire, you know, my, of my own like discontent. And so to me, the practices again, and the, the things that we're talking about, about employing things that will start to soften those edges or start to awaken, I can look at myself and say, oh, I became stable and therefore effective based on my own process of self-understanding. And ultimately, I mean, as it comes down to every, every, every whether they're C-suite or whether they're a yoga teacher or whatever it is, it always comes down to the, it's like basic tenets of self-worth and core belief and where someone lives deep within themselves in an, in the unseen realms of themselves, like what's active, what are the traumas, what are the patterns, what are the beliefs, how are those affecting the way people perceive reality, how do we get to that, create coherence, create understanding, create balance, create harmony in all of those different structures so that creation can move through that individual unfettered or unobstructed. And when you look at the individual unit of each person and say, my purpose is going to be different than your purpose, but your purpose is unique to you, my, my desire for you would be to open the aperture of your being so that creation can move through you with its greatest potency, right? And so whatever needs to happen to get that to happen, we're going to do. And then whatever you go do in the world is going to be unique to you. So for me, I'm aligning myself currently with leaders that I have a deep sense of alignment with. Like, I, I don't work with everybody, you know? It's like, it, it, and, and my hope for the ones that are really, really sideways is that they're aware enough to ask for help, you know? And that's, those people are few and far between. So for me, it's like, I've created a stability within myself to deal with the complexity of the incoherence in the field. And now I'm going to find leverage points of where I can create coherence. And it's starting with people, it's starting with CEOs or leaders that are open. My hope is that it gets towards those that aren't, because that's really where the work needs to take place. And then my other dimension would be to train anybody who has any sense of outreach to all the other communities out there, because I'm just talking about one community. You know, there's there's a whole world out there. But my intent with working with leaders specifically is to essentially maximize impact, you know. And so there is outreach to community or to the underserved or all of that. That to me feels grassroots and essential and necessary. And for me, my inspiration is to kind of to modify the field in, in as impactful way as I could by kind of hitting that central nerve of leadership. So what you're the work that you're doing mm. integrates a number of different lineages. Mm -hmm. Is that fair? 
Sure. Right? I would say, yeah, I would say yoga, Tantra yoga, Vedanta, Taoism. We use Qigong. We, and, but primarily, the, the fundamental practice that everybody agrees to is meditation. Self-reflection and meditation. And, okay, one sentence description. What is meditation? <laughs> oh, Ken. Um, <laughs> what is, as a practice or as a state? You tell me. Because, <laughs> I mean, I meditate every day. Yeah. And I sometimes wonder if what I think is meditation is what other people think is meditation. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it's, it's such a hard question to answer because in one sentence. In one word, I would say it's unification. Is it a physical experience? Yes. So in a few more than one, one word, yeah, you you know, one I would word. say that it's, a, it's a, both a practice and a process <laughs> and a state. You know, so you go to sit in meditation you sit down and you start by listening to yourself think and feel yourself feel. Now you think you're there for something else to happen. So inevitably the first act of meditation is a notion of a sense of failure because you're stuck with yourself oh. talking to yourself. Oh yeah. So people are like, well, I can't do that. I don't know how to meditate. I'm no good at it. I'm never doing it again. What meditation is and another one word answer is a mirror. And so it's, it's, awareness, it's listening, it's, it's attention. And so you're basically placing your attention on the human experience or on your experience. And there's a ton of different methods that we could talk about that basically create portals to either calm the mind, give you a broader view of an expanse of awareness or of witnessing, or there's insight meditation, which is more gauged towards actually dealing with emotional content and contemplative meditations. There is vipassana meditation, which is to do nothing, you know, to actually just do nothing. Awareness of breath of the, at the tip of the nose. That's it. Feel everything you're going to feel for 10 hours a day or whatever it is, you know, until you're going batshit crazy until your body's like, you feel like your body's going to break or you feel like your mind is going to break. And then actually what happens is the mind does break and it breaks open and you have an experience of, of something other. So it, it's an impossible, it's, there's so many different dimensions of that question that we could. Yeah. So for you, yeah. there isn't a single endpoint that's a real meditation. There are these various different practices that ultimately can lead to an experience. Yeah, I mean, I, I immediately hear like some of my traditionalist friends and teachers, but, you know, the state of meditation as a state where your individual consciousness and your, your experience of yourself as an individual entity, and let's say as consciousness, merges with the whole or cosmic consciousness or the field. And so that would be it as a state. And when you really get into the deep state in that level, then you get towards samadhi. And there's variations and grades of that. But ultimately, it's a practice and a state, you know? And so that's where the confusion lies is because we would be having two entirely different conversations to talk about it as a practice versus talking about it as a state. Right. Earlier, we were saying mm. that things are a lot different now than they were 20 years ago when we started getting into this. Mm. You and me. Yeah. How do you describe what's going on now? Hmm. 
On the light side or the shadow side? Oh, let's go both. Yeah. We'll start on the shadow and we can end on the light. Um, Sounds like a good place to go. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Because I think there is, um, I don't pay much attention to it anymore. So I actually can't speak to it as well as I used to be able to speak to it when I would kind of occupy my time looking for the incongruencies out there. But I think there is. There's a lot of misunderstanding in the yoga world, for sure. A lot of misguided teachers that are perpetuating ego and and that sort of spiritual materialism. I think there's there's a real condition of spiritual materialism. For myself, I can I can look at myself and be like, "That's hysterical that you would say that with your beard and your man bun and your scarf and whatever it is." And it's like I'm the epitome of the fucking yogi, right? So somebody can be like, "Uh." Yeah, hello. Look at you, right? I guess it's comfortable, right? I mean, I feel, I feel, I feel fine. I feel, I feel just natural. Is what I feel like. But I mean, I can, I can know that it's a joke for me to also kind of call that out because I also am an embodiment of it in in my own way. And so, but I'm aware of that. I have a sense of my position in relationship to the to my teachers. So there's a there's a gauge of humility that comes from my relationship to those who are. 20 years ahead of on, on the path that will continually reflect reflect to me greater truths that I may not see. So there, there's a real sense of safety and security in my own place of self-awareness based on based on the level of import that I place on as a teacher having a teacher, let's say. There's a lot of teachers out there that become teachers and maybe don't have a teacher, and then they lose that system of checks and balances, and then they become a sort of egregious, overinflated, power-hungry, manipulative, you know, there's a lot of that in the field, that there's a lot of power that comes with these practices. There's a lot of power that comes with a lot of people offering themselves to you in terms of, like, you. for me to say, you can be my guide, is for me to hand you a certain aspect of power and what people do with that power is all over the map. So for me, I see a lot of that misuse of that power. And like for me, in relationship to my students, I'm going to always give them back what they're giving to me. If, they, if I watch them giving me too much or giving me like if it's dysfunctional in some way, I'm going to hand that power back to them. And if, if, it's, if it's gratitude and it's appreciation, I can receive that in a healthy way and not take ownership of it or leverage it to have power over them. So I think there's a healthy state of that relationship. But I think that what I see in the in the industry and what we all see, I mean we all how many fucking gurus have been the story where they've, you know, just been sleeping with all the students or whatever it is where there's like egregious abuse of power. Oh, so, there's a good amount of that. Yeah. And so gosh, you know, that's the shadow for me. That's alive and where I then move to the the excitement and the light is that for me, I am excited about innovation and I am excited about technology and I am excited about the fact that there are the Joe Dispenza's of the world who are taking their time to extract the biology of the transcendent experience and feed it back to the masses in a way that creates a, a, a path of least resistance to people experiencing a deep state of meditation. So I'm excited about that. And a little bit of what you and I talked about the other day, my question, which I would, I'd love to talk to Joe about, would be, 
okay, I get it. You're, extract, you're extracting the essence. You're bringing people into this state. You're teaching them the science and the biology of healing and of creating intent and of creating a healthy life. And my sense is, is that he is banking on the power of that state and the potency of that state to be enough, that everything's going to come out in the wash where it's like, well, everybody's tapping into source, and so source is clear and clean, and that's going to be enough to, you know, and I'm sure he's got all sorts of stuff in his educational process that probably speaks to my question to him. So I don't, I haven't been through his process, but my, my, the real place where I'm turned on right now is I see that innovation and I love it and I appreciate it. And I think that is part of the light side of it. And my question is the rest of the tradition has its function in terms of creating sustainability to maintain sort of moral and ethical um, values while also tapping into such power. Yeah, so, I mean, I think about this a lot Mm. in the sense that our, in this, there's a consciousness movement Mm. happening where a lot of people, basically like me, who didn't see this stuff coming, started to tap into something that's showing up that is very light and beautiful and very powerful. Mm -hmm. With it comes all kinds of challenges and some dangers, Mm -hmm. you know, from ego inflation and, you know, or to making yourself available to, you know, energetic stuff that really can flip you and make you destabilized. Start, you know, in in, in my world, mm. you know, once every three weeks, I'm getting another email from some guy who just discovered he's Jesus Christ and needs to find a place to go explain it to people. Right, right. right. And is like, okay, I can't answer those emails. Like, what am I going to say, right? The destabilization is part of the process for many people, mm-hmm. frankly. Mm-hmm. And our culture doesn't have a space to hold folks who are going through that moment, right? And I'm sure you've seen this, yeah. right? I mean, yeah, you're talking about the, yeah, for, for me, this is the essence of how I spend my time, yeah, is working with that destabilization, but yeah. There's a right. lot of yeah. it going on. Yeah. And, you know, so, you know, among the folks that I'm working with in different yeah. ways, trying to find a way to create space, safe space, where folks who are going through that experience can find others to talk yeah. to about it, to kind of compare notes, to realize, oh, you, you know, you're not the first person to realize you're Jesus Christ. Yeah. And there's not only one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Right? And, but you are going through something really beautiful and we want to help you go through it and hold it. It's not like you're going, you're deliriously losing touch. Yeah. It's actually, you're opening up to what's actually there. Mm-hmm. Now you need help to figure out how to hold it. Yeah. Right? Yeah which is what more and more people seem to be finding their way into yeah. at this moment in history. Yeah. Very much off the map. This yeah. is not being covered by media, but I'm seeing a good amount of it. Yeah. You're talking about, you're seeing a good amount of it. Yeah. Fascinating place to be. So to me, that's the opportunity, but yeah. it's also about like, how do we help the holding of it? That's beautiful. Yeah. 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 And so I really in terms of that the the light of this and what you're saying of kind of the as what i'm what i'm hearing and what you're saying is that yeah in the in the in the complexity of the encounter with such power with such light someone's takeaway and then their process of integration and their assimilation of that often requires 
a way of being held so that it can actually go through its gestation, it can go through its maturing, and it can arrive at a place of integration and wholeness and whatever that new uh, state is, whatever that new normal is that has with it now the information that they gained from the depth of their experience of merging with whatever Christ-like figure they merged with or whatever it is. And so... You know, I think that I work on such a micro level and what I hear you talking about or at least bringing up is how do we really look at creating a bigger macro structure that can support this? And so in terms of the light side of it, it's like, I think that's brilliant. I mean, I hear that and I say like, absolutely, yes. So what is that structure and what will that look like? And essentially, immediately my mind kind of goes towards scale, you know, and scalability and how can we create something that has integrity and has sustainability and has scalability to reach and touch and create the environment that's supportive enough and sustainable enough over that period of time. And, I mean, that's a big, that's a big question. Well, yeah, but this is what actually, this is, this is something that's in progress. Mm. Lots of folks are contributing to it one way or another. Ultimately, it's about community building. Yeah. It's about essentially making the sangha. Yeah. In the 21st century way for folks who are not wedded to any one particular practice or lineage. See, and that's that's an interesting distinction, too, in terms of the extraction of any particular lineage. Because everything I'm in, in terms of those concentric circles that I'm starting with, the people I have contact with is around specific tradition and specific practices. So... So that is the future, right? What you're talking about is the future. And... And then it immediately brings me into the sort of, the, you know, if if you're going to go towards that place of creating an environment that is outside of tradition, then what aspects are the central kind of tenets that hold it in place in an integrous way that, you know, would essentially be what tradition has to offer? <laughs> you know? There's a so, lot of dialogue yeah. that needs to happen around this. Yeah. And it's got to feel real and not forced. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's not just about importing another culture's way yeah. of organizing that energy. Yeah. Right? It's got to be folks who are informed about traditional ways of holding yeah. that energy. Yeah. Making something that's new and real for where we live. Yeah. It's not as if efforts aren't ongoing around this, however they're being referred to. People sure. may not talk about it so explicitly as that. But I think that's that's to that point of what we were talking about before in terms of when you identify something, when you can identify something in its process, you lay the foundation for someone to acquire a deeper state of understanding and a deeper state of learning or a deeper state of, a deeper state in the end. So there is a lot of merit and a lot of value to being able to define it and being able to articulate it because you end up laying down the the stones. I really appreciate you coming in and yeah. sharing this with us today Yeah, and diving in, diving in deep. My uh, pleasure, man. Thank and, you. And a lot of fun. Thank you, Ken. It's been a pleasure. I want to thank Kevin for being a guest on our show today. And I want to thank you, too, for being with us. You can follow more of what Kevin is doing by going to his website at kevinjcourtney.com. You also can check out his Instagram, which is kevinjcourtney. 
And his Facebook is Kevin John, J-O-H-N, Courtney. You can practice with Kevin online at Gaia.com slash Kevin. And Kevin is based in Brooklyn. And if you start following him online, you'll be able to see what kinds of workshops and stuff he's doing both here and elsewhere around the globe. I want to thank our producer, Jose Alfaro, and the ACAST team. Our theme music is Measure by Measure by Paul D. Miller, a.k.a. DJ Spooky, from his album The Secret Song. And our interstitial music are tracks by The Human Experience, Sunu from the album Soul Visions with Rising Appalachia, and here for a moment on the album Gone, Gone, Beyond. Please check them out. That's all for now. We'll be back next week. Find the others. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs>